Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and as is now becoming a somewhat regular occurrence for Geek Warning, uh, we're mixing up the crew again today. For this week's show, we've got Dave Rome and Kaylee Fretz. Ronan and Zach are taking this week off. Dave, welcome back. How was the Handmade Bike Show? Hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, a room full of very desirable machines and good people. So it's always a good weekend. Cool. Excellent. Kaylee, it's been a little while. Your background looks different from usual. Where are you? <laughs> I am back home in Burlington, Vermont, where I grew up and where I first started racing bikes. And yeah, I went for a ride at my old stomping grounds yesterday and enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, even if I forgot, because I now live in the desert, that when you stop riding here, mosquitoes come for you. Ah, quickly. yes. Yeah, well. <laughs> I forgot completely about that. I didn't love that part. But other than that, I'm, I'm enjoying being home. All the more motivation to just keep on surfing that lovely brown pal that you have out there instead of the decomposed granite that we have here in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, I've still got my Colorado tires on. In fact, I have Colorado race tires on because the last ride I did before I left was a was a mountain bike race. Uh, and I'm going to race tomorrow, and it's supposed to rain. And I don't think I need you two geeks to tell me that maybe my 2.4 Aspens are not going to be the best choice for uh, a muddy cross-country At least they won't pack oh, yeah, up. Race tomorrow. Yeah, on, on next week, uh, by the way, on next week's Geek Warning Show, we're going to recap Kaylee's own personal unbound moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they won't pack uh, up, I just won't stay upright. Right, I think right. that's the... <laughs> well, uh, for this week's show, we do have a giant pile of new bikes and gear to talk about, including some new road bikes, some new gravel bikes, uh, Shimano's new 12-speed GRX gravel group set that recently broke ground. Uh, unofficially, of course. Uh, fancy new chain cleaner from Silka, too. Uh, we'll also do a recap of Dave's time at the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. We'll talk about the true cost of unbound gravel. And then we'll see what's on everyone's mind and finish off, as usual, with some handy public service announcements. Uh, before we get into it, a public service announcement of our own uh, and a quick word from our sponsor, which would be you. Uh, regular listeners of Geek Warning will note that we do not run any industry ads on the show, and that's because this show is funded directly by our listeners. Monthly memberships start at just $11.99, or you can save a bunch of money by going with an annual plan that gets you full access to everything on the site, plus unlimited commenting on articles, an invitation to our members-only Discord channel, and an opportunity to participate in our live Geek Warning episodes. So if you're already a member, thank you very much. If you're not, though, please consider signing up so we can continue to bring this awesome show straight into your eardrums. All right. With that all said, let's get into the news. Before we move on, uh, I would I would just like to hang around and chat a little bit more about this membership uh, element because oh, they're, oh, they're, they're internally there there is actually talk about figuring out ways how to better monetize this podcast, and that doesn't involve ads. And when you don't involve ads, it basically means you need to end up paywalling the content. And I don't want that to happen. I want this to be an open podcast, but we really do need people to sign up. So uh, so if you like this podcast, if you listen to every app or, or most apps, then uh, yeah, please sign up because uh, yeah, each episode costs us, what, two annual, three annual memberships? So we do need... Uh, oh, it's more than that. It's more than that. <laughs> there you say, go, Dave. We're not. So, I can say, Dave, we're not that cheap. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I mean, that, and that's yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to, this whole episode to be about this, but it's 
I've heard it from a few people which haven't signed up yet. They love what we do and they haven't signed up yet because they don't necessarily feel like they, they read everything that we produce. But your annual membership covers goes towards one piece of content, you know, if in, in a way that you can look at it that way. Uh, obviously, that's not how we figure it out. It gets divided up and averaged out. But uh, yeah, it's it's important that everyone that enjoys what we do does support us. So. That's just my little heartfelt message. Dave, I can't decide if that was like a pseudo threat that we're going to paywall the podcast or <laughs> like a little, bit of, me. Or a little bit of a request <laughs> or plead that people sign up so that we can keep doing this. Take it however you want. But yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, what, what, whatever works. Maybe right? we need whatever to edit works. that part out. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, leave, leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. Uh, no, you're right. You are right. Though, Dave, like if if like fundamentally we make this podcast for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And at the moment, because we don't put ads in it, there's no way of monetizing a lot of those people. If you just look at this from a pure business perspective. Right. And if we're not monetizing any of those people out there, like if you're out there listening to this for absolutely free and we're not advertising, which we're not purposefully, that means we're just losing money on you. Like you're you're it's not that you're not, you know paying we are literally losing money every single time you listen to this podcast and so yeah it's i mean that's not particularly sustainable so people need to people need to sign up if they are fans of the pod that's it basically as simple as that 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 all said if anyone listening to this show happens to either work at or know someone who works at the haribo corporation Mm. we have nothing against running non-endemic ads whatsoever (laughs) So if someone at Haribo wants to sponsor this podcast with a either cash or a product donation, that would be wonderful. Yeah. I'd be all for it. I mean, that. that's just that's just <laughs> basically um circumnavigating James's uh addiction there. So, you know, like he doesn't need a salary if you're just gonna send him the Haribo directly, then that's just yeah. Anyway. That's I mean just it, finding efficiencies. Yes. It, I was gonna say it all ends up getting spent the same way anyway. Yeah. Anyway. All right, let, let's get into the news, shall we? Enough of this tangent stuff. Not too long ago, uh, Ronin found a new BMC Aero road bike underneath riders uh, Ben O'Connor and Gren, Greg Van Avermaet at the Dauphiné. Uh, both of those riders on AG2R. Uh, this is apparently a joint project between BMC and Red Bull Advanced Technologies, of all people. Uh, and it looks to take advantage of the latest changes to the UCI technical rules. We've got an extremely deep head tube. We've got a quite a bit deeper down tube and seat tube than the current Time Machine Road. Uh, we've got this big filled-in area around the bottom bracket shell. We've got these super, super wide fork blades. Um, top tube shaping is also really, really odd because it kind of starts out almost sort of like this big, long isosceles triangle up front, and then it sort of just tapers down to like this kind of like flat leaf springy sort of shape down by the seat tube. Uh, integrated cockpit, fully internal, integrated cockpit and fully internal routing, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, presumably this is going to be a replacement for the Time Machine Road, or maybe it's a new model altogether. We don't really know. Dave, what do you think here? Uh, I've definitely heard a rumor on this. Uh, but the rumor is, is that it's not going to be called the Time Machine, and that uh, that makes sense to me because that's super confusing that it was called the Time Machine because the time trial bikes also called also the, the Time, time Machine. machine. <laughs> uh, so it definitely makes sense that they're going to rebrand this. Uh, it my understanding, I probably it's probably not my my info to give away. So yes, Kaylee. 
I was going to ask if is it, is it going to be called the create speed? Sorry, the hashtag create speed. It's not. The, it'll still have a machine in the name. Mm. Um, and, and it's made for racing. Um, speed machine? Go faster machine? No, no machines. The second, second word. I think I think I won't <laughs> share it just yet because that's probably uh, it's probably a rumor. Too close. Oh, do you want it? Dangling like that. All you right, it's, get, it's going to be called the race machine. Is is what uh, a certain birdie told me. So, uh, which you know works out with the team machine and and everything else in that sense. So, and the pro machine they used to have once upon a time. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it works. It's it's certainly a better name than having the same name as your time trial bike. Yeah. Either way, the bike looks super intriguing. Like I wouldn't say it's the most particularly elegant looking design out there. Like it's a little, definitely a little awkward looking. Um, I, I would have to think that there is some good science behind it. However, particularly up at the front end with those super wide fork blades. Um, you know, there seems to be two schools of thought as Ronan noted in his article, you've got kind of one group of designers who go particularly narrow at the fork blades and you have another one that goes super, super wide. Um, but one thing that I'm wondering about, and maybe we'll have this question answered when the bike is is officially announced is if those super wide fork blades kind of gives you kind of like a more forgiving aero envelope, so to speak, for running different tires and wheels, because that is always something that. I feel like it isn't talked about enough uh, that aero gains and aero efficiencies and stuff like that are often so conditional that I wonder if this is a way that you can kind of get around that a little bit. It doesn't look like there's much room above the tire at the moment. If you, if you look at that front view, it, so they look, I think they're 25s on there. Hmm. Uh, I think that's what it says on the side. Who knows what they actually measure, but it doesn't look like there's much room for more than about a 28 if if that is correct, which would be a weird choice, it would be, I think. It would be a little bit weird, although if it is really designed to be a full-blown dedicated aero road racing bike, then I'd say that's probably not a bad way to go. I mean, it obviously takes away some of the versatility, but if it's something that keeps it lower, if it's something that keeps it lower, gives you a, I mean, if they have some sort of aerodynamic motiva- uh, motivation for doing that, realistically, no matter what brand or shape of tire you use, as long as they are generally of a similar casing size, the overall wheel and tire diameter is not going to be all that different, but the width and the shape could change a lot, which again is kind of why I'm, I'm wondering a lot about that fork blade width. Mm. Yeah, no, you're, you're right on what you're saying, James, where, you know, wrong wheel with the right frame is is the wrong frame from an aerodynamic point of view right so like all the all the frame sets uh are designed typically with one wheel set in mind off maybe sometimes more but i mean that's time in the wind tunnel that often just gets overcomplicates things pretty quickly so yeah it's it's certainly known that certain wheels change the performance of certain frames and vice versa so uh yeah opening up that gap probably does seem like a way to to get around that and uh just uh you know have more consistent performance in that sense um but yeah in terms of uh the other rumor i heard with this bike is that the geometry is going to be a little bit different from what the team machine has been so the team machine has always been one of like the longer trail road bikes like a bit more uh neutral handling a bit a bit slower handling i'd say than a lot of its uh compatriot race bikes on the market 
it's it's sort of got a trail around from memory, like the sixty-one millimeter mark, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. Uh, and this one's going to be a bit more uh, a bit more snappy, from what I heard. So, mm. yeah, no falling asleep at the wheel on this one, then. No, no. I mean, yeah, I I love the team machine, um, but yeah, I guess it was always you know they they always pitched it on being like the best all round bike. You know, it was always. They'll never shy to say it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't the lightest, it wasn't the stiffest, it wasn't the the most aerodynamic, it wasn't the quickest handling, it just was a very lovely bike to ride that did everything well. Uh, so it kind of makes sense that they're, as a racing, you know, as a performance company, it kind of makes sense that they'd make a product that, that aims to do a number of those things better. Right, for, right. Well, yeah. As of right now, again, we don't have any official information on this bike just yet, but seeing as how it is early June right now and the tour is right around the corner, uh, I suspect that we are going to know an awful lot more about this in just a few weeks' time. So stay tuned on that one. We'll bring you more as we get it. Um, Another new road bike that Ronan uncovered, however, is uh, presumably a new Factor 02 VAM. Uh, This one was spotted under Dylan Toons of Israel Premier Tech. Uh, this was in just, well, we were basically just going on one sort of blurry, fuzzy photo that Rodin found somewhere, I think, on social media. Um, and if this is a new Factor 02 van, which would kind of make sense given his team and given the timing of the existing model, um, this one should still have very much a focus on very low weight. Um, and the profile of the bike seems to support that. It's got very shallow profile tubes. Super, super skinny seat stays, uh, an integrated seat mast with uh, some sort of telescoping top, some sort of telescoping topper, um, and it also has like a really, really thin-looking tapered top tube. Um, again, this is one that we don't really know a whole lot about. Factor's not talking anything about it, um, but if it is again an updated Factor O2 VAM, uh, that's particularly interesting because the current O2 VAM has a claimed weight of just 690 grams for a 54 centimeter size. Which makes me wonder how light might this thing be? Uh, very is my guess. But uh, I, I rode the uh, the current generation O2 VAM, and yeah, I mean it's it's exceptionally lightweight bike, but uh, and it's also very stiff. But what I didn't like is that I, I got the sensation that it was almost too stiff on really rough terrain. Uh, sort of you'd you'd be descending on a on a rough road, and you could start to feel the wheels start to skip a little bit under you uh, in certain conditions. So yeah, maybe. Maybe they might dial it back. Who knows? It's you know we don't have any information on this, but I mean from my from my point of view, I mean the the weight is already low enough. So I personally would like to see them just refine that ride quality just a little bit, and then I think they've got themselves a a truly lovely bike. Well, one thing that's interesting about the seat mast thing is um, if you take what the companies who currently use seat masts, uh, if you take what they say at face value. Using an integrated seat mast isn't so much a way to decrease weight as it is a way to refine the rod quality. Yep. Um, Giant in particular says this a lot. Yeah. Um, and essentially the way that they do that is because you no longer have these kind of double layer overlapping telescoping sections right at that seat cluster where a lot of that flex happens. Um, if you just get rid of that area or get rid of that that sort of junction, then you can engineer a lot more flex at that point. So um given how flat that top tube appears to be and that seat cluster. I mean, it is certainly possible that this new one is not going to be any lighter, as you, as you said, Dave. Um, but if it does 
give a much more improved ride. It could make it a much more usable bike. Um, and in that, in that essence, it would effectively, in my opinion, kind of make it a faster and, you know, better climbing bike if you're better able to just stay in the saddle and keep pedaling. Yeah. For sure, yeah, it does seem to. It does seem like that integrated seat post concept is is kind of making a comeback. Uh, like the open mind, M I N D, uh, is another one, like a sort of an endurance road bike with an integrated seat post, specifically there to, for as you say, James, to have a a better control over that seated comfort. Uh, but yeah, I, I was seeing quite a few integrated seat posts at the the handmade show. So I mean, it it sort of it does seem to be coming back in some regards so anyway uh just a quick note for listeners here if any of you are hearing strange noises in the background of my track that's because i'm out on a balcony right now i'm in winter park colorado and there is a storm rolling through uh there is some very dark and threatening looking clouds coming my way and some thunder and I don't see any lightning yet james but, is, uh, if my audio so is that an, if my audio if my audio yeah if my audio suddenly goes dark and my screen suddenly goes very, very bright. You'll know what happened. James, is that an <laughs> S-Works Epic World Cup I just saw blow past you? <laughs> in, in a tornado? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't have that bike up here with me. Oh, okay. F- all right, I must do, be someone you, else's you I, then that just went past you. Yeah. Yeah, all right. yeah, yeah. although you, you and I both do have one of those in for review. So. Yeah, mine's on S-Works. Anyway. It's thankfully just that little bit heavier, so it's safe in a storm. Mm, okay, yeah, I have to time mine down at the end of the ride. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, moving on, we have some other new stuff to talk about. It's some pretty big news coming out of Unbound Gravel on the tech front. Uh, one of the biggest ones is probably uh, a new 12-speed mechanical Shimano GRX Gravel group set. Um, this, I would say, is probably, I think, I think it's safe to say that this is long overdue. Um, Shimano, I think, is kind of quickly falling off the back with gravel gearing and group sets and that sort of thing. Um, so this one appears to finally bring more suitable one-by gearing to GRX. Uh, it has a lot of mountain bike styling cues and design features in it. Um, it uh, looks like it is compatible with Shimano's current 1045 or 1051 tooth cassettes. You have a more mountain bike-like rear derailleur design uh, that goes onto a micro-splined cassette uh, freeha body. Um, otherwise the, the brake calipers and lever design actually look pretty much carryover aside from what is surely some new internals and levers. Um, we don't know a whole lot about the crank arms right now. Um, we also have a bunch of other questions. Shimano, of course, is not really saying anything about this, but there is clearly a new GRX on the way. And it's mechanical. And it is mechanical. Yeah. Which is a, a pretty big deal. I say, I would say considering on the road front, everything seems to be going electronic. Um, uh, there certainly would be a new GRX DI2 coming out at some point. Also, we haven't seen that out in the wild just yet. Um, you know, in addition to that question, we also don't know if Shimano is definitely going to stick with um, a two by offering as well. I mean, Shimano is pretty big on multiple chain rings up front for, I, I guess if for no other reason than the fact that they're able to do it really, really well. They do it really well. And I'd say, speaking from a mountain bike point of view, Shimano's stuck with 2 by way beyond the market wanting them to. So given that the gravel market still wants 2 by or a segment of the gravel market is still very keen on on 2 by uh, it makes perfect sense that we'd see 2 by continue. Yeah, I remember they refused to send me one by to review this would have been like right at the end of my velo news yeah. years so like 2017 yep. this is like a solid three or four years past when anybody wanted to run two by on a mountain bike and they absolutely refused to send me a one by group set to 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 test so i ended up just like 
All right, I'll test it as a two by for like a month, and I then I'm gonna the, make it one by anyway. I did the exact same thing with <laughs> XTR with XTR 11 speed that I had on test, and I and I actually heard from a, an editor, a UK publication, that Shimano in the UK was actively taking test group sets off of editors that were running them one by. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> they were like coming and confiscating. Yeah, them. yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that was in relation to the ten speed stuff when like the Koch trailers first came out, or if it was more uh, mm. eleven speed. But yeah, either way, it's hilarious. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and go off on a little bit of a tangent of my own here. Uh, later this August, I am going to do the Breck Epic again. I guess just the three day version of it, not the six day version that I did however many years ago. Um, that's, it's this big high Alpine multi-day, in this case, a three-day, uh, mountain bike stage race. And the last time I did it, it was on a two by 11 Shimano XTR DI2 group set. And that was, as you said, Kaylee, already at the point where one by was pretty quickly taking hold. I'm pretty positive XX1 had already come out at that point. Um, so I remember thinking that it was a little bit odd that Shimano really wanted me to run two by. Um, but that said... It did work it, really, really well. Yeah. I know, I know, 2x is not popular. Well, it's dead, basically, for, for a mountain bike. Um, but I will say, in that, in that stage race over six days and in that kind of conditions, it worked awesome. Yeah. They do a good job with three. I, I sometimes wonder what we've, what we've left behind there. You know, like the, la- the last time I raced Leadville, I ran a 2 by and that was basically because the speed differential between different parts of the course was so high, right? Like I needed to be able to pedal and shift. You know, and not just have like one bailout gear, but actually have like a couple different gear options at 18 to 25 miles an hour. And then I also needed to be able to get up the side of Columbine, you know, a 15% grade at 12,000 feet and basically needed the lowest possible gear I could, I could, I could possibly find. And yeah, like two by was the obvious solution to that. And even today, I'm not sure any of the one by drivetrains would actually perform as well in terms of providing me the range while also providing the yeah basically not just leaving me jumping between a a 10 and 11 all day right tooth cog i mean, that, I mean that, that that's my nightmare is it's just like the the massive jump in between those two gears and that's your only two options along some flat stretch of windy road no thank you right yeah well i mean stranger things have happened right and we we definitely see trends depart and return at some point and i'm not going to say that like a mountain bike triple is ever going to come back into into fashion but uh i mean i mean classified is trying to keep the dream alive right now to an extent i mean i don't i don't think we're ever going to see a conventional multi-chain ring front derailleur mountain bike drivetrain come back it just seems like that horse has left the stable in particular in terms of frame manufacturers because no one wants to design around a front derailleur anymore nope um Especially but, given it the effect it has on the kinematics of suspension, yeah, I mean that was yeah. that was a huge a huge leap forward is ditching the front derailleur for frame design. Yeah, yeah. But as far as gravel goes, I would be very I'd, I'd be extremely surprised, as you said, Dave, if Shimano ditched multiple multiple chain rings because it does work really well, at least certainly the way that they do it. But like you know the the boiled frog parable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like if you if you chuck a frog in a pot of boiling water it'll jump out but if you put a frog in cold water and then turn it up put heat underneath it and get it to boil it'll just stay in there because it doesn't really realize what's happening is that us and a 1051 cassette like we have we don't actually we, it, it took so long to get here 
and we've kind of gotten used to each step along the way that actually the gear jumps in between those those gears for particularly for like for racing applications are are enormous compared to what we had to deal with before and are, yeah are we just the boiled frog like we've just we're just sitting here with this if if we went back if we went back to old cassettes you know like even like an old mountain bike you know give, give me a 1042 right uh would would that feel better in some way this is this is me just asking the question i don't actually yeah i, I mean i think you can i think you can argue it both ways uh, and the thing is my guess is that shimano is going to give people the option um because i mean we don't i don't think we should fixate on that 1051 cassette because there is also going to be that 1045 option um which is very similar to the 1044 explorer cassette that sram runs for their gravel stuff um as Just as one, one of their more. options it, yeah, and it yeah, exactly. One, um, and Again. that ten forty four works quite. Well, that ten forty four does work quite well for grab, for gravel applications in a one by setup. Um, it, it's certainly still going to have bigger jumps than what you would get with a tighter cassette and multiple chain rings. But I think to each their own as far as what what's kind of important to everyone and what sort of gravel riding you're doing. I could see if you were in like a big race, um, you know. <laughs> like steamboat gravel or something where where maintaining a particular cadence is pretty important particularly in a group or in like longer road-ish sections um that's probably someplace where i could see two by being being desirable with a tighter cassette um but otherwise my guess is that the vast majority of people are going to want to go with one by just because it's simpler i think lachlan morton was on two by at unbound did i see that i don't pretty remember. sure i'm almost positive i saw that in the gallery wouldn't surprise yeah. me no, no, I, that that's a perfect example, right? Like, I just happened to see Keegan Swenson's Instagram post earlier, and I think his average speed, or maybe it was a lifetime Instagram post, average speed was like twenty point five or twenty one miles an hour for for ten hours, which is just on gravel. Wow! But like, yeah, I mean, like, it, how do you even get an what, e-bike battery that big? Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're running much larger front chain rings so they do you know they're spending the bulk of the day in the sort of nicer bit of that cassette they're not just dropping in between the 11 and the 10 all day uh but even so i think you could make you could make a pretty good argument that a, that a double is actually a better system for a race like that i actually on that topic i actually have an opinion about uh a lot of the 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 drivetrain issues we saw happen in that that muddy section 12 miles in which is when you get packed up mud like that a narrow wide chain ring once it has a huge amount of grit and mud in it it's the narrow wide chain ring profile that actually doesn't allow any room for the chain to sit down onto the chain ring and in that sense a more traditional chain ring would probably actually have better chain retention and i'm kind of i mean i've only seen limited limited uh coverage i guess of showing you know the exact moment of failures and stuff but i wouldn't be surprised if if a lot of the the people not being able to ride through there were on one by systems that were just throwing the chain off the chain ring yeah certainly entirely possible you know who did not have any drivetrain issues however were the crew from rodeo labs because they were all running single speeds nice <laughs> we, we, we we wanted to talk about this so should we kind of explain what happened here oh we're gonna oh don't worry we're gonna get to that just oh, okay just, just, okay just we'll come back to hold, it. We'll come hold, back to it. Sit, right. sit tight on that one just a little bit let's while, while we're on the topic of unbound though so um 
as I was saying, like uh, before I wrap up this part, Shimano doesn't have any official info that they have disclosed just yet, but this one very much looks uh, like a cake that's fully baked. So I'd imagine a full reveal very soon. Um, Another bike, another new product that we saw, or I shouldn't say we, this, a lot of this came from our fellow independent bike journalist, Ben Delaney, from The Ride with Ben Delaney. You can check out his YouTube channel. Um, he also spotted a new Santa Cruz Stigmata gravel bike at Unbound. Uh, it's actually a bike that Keegan Swenson used to win the 200-mile uh, pro men's Unbound gravel category. Um, that current generation Stigmata came out uh, in mid-2019, so that one's also due for an update. And from what we can see, again, this is not any information that's coming directly from Santa Cruz yet, um, but it looks to be quite a bit more kind of like mountain bike-ish in profile. Um, you've got like a quite a bit lower top tube, more slope to it. Uh, it appears to have a lot more tire clearance. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if it cleared like a 700 by 50. Um, uh, another trend that we're definitely seeing with this new generation of gravel bikes in general, this one's also going to be compatible with uh, SRAM's UDH, that universal derailleur hanger, which will make it compatible with the new transmission stuff. Um, it's got a down tube storage compartment. Certainly looks like it's still tube bike compatible. Um, still carbon fiber, of course. Um, but again, we don't really know a whole lot about this one, but this one looks like it could be pretty good. It also looks a lot more on brand for Santa Cruz. You definitely. And, James, you and I like had previously reviewed the the current generation stigmata and i guess what we came away with as well as a lovely bike it just kind of felt a little bit generic for santa cruz like you you could put any brand on it and it would be you know still a great bike but it's not what you'd expect from a an iconic mountain bike brand you know you'd expect something a bit more um defining uh so yeah i think this seems to tick a few of those boxes uh even if it's just for the the down tube storage that does it but uh yeah, I don't know. It's it looks like a cool bike. It does look cool. Um, uh, another one that actually looks pretty cool. Um, the winner of the women's two hundred mile, uh, Caroline Schiff, she won on a new Canyon Grail. Well, what we're assuming to be a Canyon Grail. That bike again has been around for a little while, and that one's also due for a redesign. How many handlebars oh, does it have? Oh wait, that's it. Only has one. It Whoa. only has one. There's oh, all. That's there's, the right amount. It is. <laughs> so there is there is no more dual decker hover bar thing. Uh, we have a one piece conventional carbon bar up front, still um, like an integrated, fully integrated bar and stem setup. Uh, it does have headset routing. Boo. Um, this bike also has UDH. No surprise. Um, whereas the current Grail has a round twenty seven point two millimeter seat post. This one moves to a D shaped seat post. Um, there's also down tube storage. Uh, this one's definitely still two by compatible. It's got more mounts on it. Um, it seems like it is, it seems like Canyon is pushing the grail and grizzle a little bit further apart at this point. Like it, it seems like they're making out the grail to be more of like your gravel race bike. Um, that seems to be where it's going and the, and the grizzle is going to be more of like the gravel adventure bike, which makes sense. Um, it, as it is right now, the grail and the grizzle are awfully close to each other. Um, so that seems like a logical step, hmm. but it's two wildly different use cases. So makes perfect sense. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is one I'm pretty interested to see. I actually own a grail AL myself. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure all three of us rode that grail, AL, yeah, that grail AL at uh, a previous test event at the old place. Uh, and we all came away really being quite happy with it. Uh, Abby actually bought one too. Yeah, uh, now yeah. that I think about it, one of my most recommended I gravel love, bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, love that bike. So yeah, so just, 
shift again one on the carbon fiber version uh i would have to imagine there will also be an aluminum one that has probably identical geometry and the aluminum one never had the hover bar but it certainly is not going to have it still um yeah so we'll see what this one looks like too yeah, I would say uh, Canyon typically don't always keep their their lines in sync, so it's it's quite possible we'll see the carbon bike come out and the alloy bike just remain completely unchanged. Uh, and I base that on the fact that like you look at the current Endurance bike and they've got the entry level carbon is actually a very different geometry and frame, while they're still running the older version at the high at the high end of the carbon. So yeah, I think Canyon just do things as it suits them and uh yeah don't necessarily yeah revamp the entire lineup um in one go so yeah it'll be interesting to see but either way yeah it's we you know all of us recommend that alloy bike because it's it's great and most importantly it has a a common cockpit and a normal handlebar on the front uh i honestly i don't think i've ever recommended anyone buy the the grail carbon with the, the hover bar it's just it's just too polarizing it is polarizing. It, it's I've, I have ridden that hover bar, um, and the thing is, it aside from the way it looks, it's actually not a bad setup. Um, it it works. It does, it does work. work. It, yeah. It but it just looks terrible. It just looks awful. And it, it, I still don't know yeah. how that one got out. Like I don't know how that one got through the whole process. You know, like uh, mostly because at launch, the press people like the marketing folks were all like almost apologizing for this thing, right? Like literally up from day one, which is not the best sign <laughs> for a new product. Well, I mean, it's, it's like it stood in the lineup for a long time. It did. So they must've still been selling it. And, and it certainly was something that set Canyon apart. Um, no question. It set it apart. Um, don't know if it set it apart necessarily in a good way, um, I, but uh, I think it's safe to say they did sell an awful lot of those bikes. But mm. yeah, Kaylee, I don't know how that got through. I'm going to guess someone at Canyon was like a like a closet biplane fanatic. I, I don't really know. <laughs> but uh, but either way, that hover bar appears to be no more. So, so long, hover bar. We will miss you. All right, will we? Not so much. <laughs> All right, uh, that's enough for new bikes and components. Uh, another little, little new bit that uh, actually I think is going to have a bigger impact than it might seem. Um, Silka has a new bike care product. Um, it's called a chain stripper and wax prep. And uh, they are billing it as, quote, one product, one chemical, one step, 10 minutes, unquote. So, uh, Dave, do you want to give the run through on this one? Because you are our resident in-house wax chain expert ah sure uh yeah the chain stripper and wax prep i mean it's it's basically a degreaser um (laughs) in in the most simple sense but it's designed to yeah you can either use it on uh on the chain on the bike you you basically apply it and leave it for a few minutes and it'll yeah dissolve i guess all the the grease and grime out of the chain and base according to i haven't used it but according to silica it basically just drips out and then and then you rinse it off uh they do recommend a second application of it to get it truly to get that chain truly sterile uh where you can then uh apply your drip wax lube uh, otherwise they're also saying it, it's like the perfect prep for if you want to do like a submersion hot melt wax that you you can basically dunk a, a new chain in this and leave it for a few minutes, rinse, and you're you're ready to go. So what they're trying to solve here is that 
previously, if you wanted to really get into the, say, the submersion hot melt wax game, you you needed to get that chain down to bare metal, and that often required multiple flushes of pretty heavy chemicals. So, uh, yeah, you'd normally start with um, white spirits and and uh, go on to sort of like a, a denatured alcohol after that. And it's not so cheap, and it takes a few processes. And, yeah, it was quite a barrier to entry for a lot of people. So Silk is trying to remove that. That all said, and while I, I actually suspect this product works incredibly well, um, it's probably worth noting that it's not the only one that does this. Uh, Ceramic Speed UFO Clean is seemingly of I, I haven't I've used UFO Clean, but I haven't used this new Silk product. But they're seemingly very very similar stories with what they do, and uh, yeah, that UFO Clean for Ceramic Speed. I mean, that's the product they use themselves in house when prepping chains for their uh the ufo chains their their own in-house wax chains so yeah it's it's sounds like they're they're both playing in a very similar spot with this with these products yeah i I can't remember if if uh, ceramic speed claims this as well but one thing that silica is saying with uh this chain stripper and wax prep thing is supposedly there's something in there that not only uh, like they're describing it as encapsulates the grease and oil and stuff like that and kind of like keeps it from contaminating the chain again. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're saying that there's also uh, almost kind of like an intentional residue, so to speak, that that is um, uh, like wax phyllic. <laughs> like it it wants to, it, it promotes wax adhesion to the metal supposedly. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, that, if that's all true, then... You know, even if it's only just as good as UFO Clean, I think the more products we have like that that are on the market, the better. Because yep. I know that in previous episodes, we've had kind of you know contrasting attitudes about the whole chain wax thing, mainly because of the difficulty of prep and how easy it is for people to get wrong. But I'd say the easier we can make that process, the better it will be. Because for sure, chain waxing is not best for everyone in every situation, but for... I would say most people who tend to ride primarily in the dry, I would say there are an awful lot of benefits if, if for no other reason than the fact that your stuff just lasts so much longer. Yeah. I'd say like, uh, I know we've joked about in the past that, you know, Holy grail of, of, of wax and other things, but, uh, uh, yeah, I think wax is going to continually become more and more popular in cycling and they're still getting better. These lubes. You know, there's been leaps and bounds uh, development in the last few years. Uh, it's all really just come on in the last three or four years. And prior to that, it was just squirt. Is is all that exists in the market five years ago? And now you look at the marketplace, and it's just it's getting fairly saturated. But it's uh, there's still these step forwards in what in how long and how durable the waxes are, and how clean they run, and how easy they are to apply. And uh, yeah, uh, Josh Portner, he he suddenly said. Um, you know, he told me that, yeah, the future is wax from their point of view as a company. Uh, Ceramic Speed seemed to seem, uh, feel the same way. And I'd say from what I've seen, the companies that are truly investing legitimate money in the R&D of, of such products uh, all seem to be finding their way onto the same path. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it, it's funny that you mentioned the whole squirt thing because I, I've been using squirt for a pretty long time. And... I find it kind of amusing that, as you say, the wax market has evolved so much in the last few years that wax, uh, that, that squirt now is, it's almost kind of, I don't want to describe it as an inferior product because it's still really good, but I would say 
the fact that there are so many products that are measured to be better than Squirt is mm-hmm. is interesting. But I think we also shouldn't forget that Squirt is still really good. And the fact that now we have a whole bunch of stuff that's really good yep. is great. And, and it's way cheaper than a lot of that other stuff. Yeah, it is. Which it is, is why like which significantly is, cheaper. It's significantly cheaper, which is why it's not as good because the raw ingredients using it are cheaper. Um, but yeah, I mean, Squirt deserves all the success it's had because i mean they literally kick-started this entire movement you know there's indeed yeah as far as that emulsion wax lubricant products i mean it was only wasn't even 10 years ago that ceramic speed themselves for their own wax chains were recommending squirt as a top-up lube so it's it's clear that this that product uh yeah influenced so many so anyway indeed indeed i'm on team wax now what really what what Whoa, 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 whoa. When did this happen? <laughs> when I moved to Durango and I moved to a place that uh, the mountain bike trails are covered in moon dust and anything other than a wax doesn't work. Mm. Like it just, it gets, it, it, you got a, you got a dry squeaky chain within 45 minutes. But, but does we ha- not matter. What, what, what it's just like the- really fine powdery dirt, basically. But we, ha- but the conditions in Boulder were not all that different. And back then you were just not on the wax train at all. Oh, no, no, no. They're, they're, it's way more moon dusty in, mm. uh, in Durango. Like it's, it's a, it's a much finer, much finer dirt, like less kind of kitty litter and more like, more like powder, more powder, like, like, yeah, just straight powder. Uh, and yeah, wax is the only thing that I, that I found that, that sticks around and that doesn't just gunk up or, or gunk up immediately. You, you basically, your two options, if you want to be able to ride for more than 45 minutes are wax or something that basically just turns your entire drivetrain into a pile of sludge, which is quiet at least or, or swift. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, I'm, I still, I'm, I refuse to break out the crock pot. Oh, okay. Uh, That's but- what I was going to ask. Are you drip wax or <laughs> your, your hot milk? Drip wax. I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I can't, uh, no. And because, I, like, I don't see you doing well, a crockpot thing. Because whatever this, whatever it is, the, whatever the dirt is, and I should, like, I should find out. It's, it's, there's a lot of clay around, whatever it is. Even, like, I, I did a, I did the hot melt once, and I, I get, like, a ride and a half out of mm. it. So I'm not going to do that multiple times every week. Like, this is just, it, there's no, I, I literally get, like, 40 miles out of, out of a hot melt chain. Uh oh. Again, I you're going to have this, Adam Kieran of Zero Friction Cycling trying to solve this for you now, Kaylee. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I, I, don't know, I, can, I don't know what this dirt is, but I, it's I know just, the email is coming. I know, yeah. com- I know yeah. what the email from Adam is coming. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, like I'm, I'm now in a, a routine where I, I drip wax, usually squirt because it's cheaper. Like okay. I'm not going to go gonna spend ask, forty dollars yeah. on a bottle of wax for like. I, I, cause, cause here, cause I basically have to do, I have to reapply every single ride. Right. And so I stripped the chain down. Uh, in fact, last time I did that, I used the ceramic speed stuff, uh, stripped the chain all the way down. And then I basically just apply a, like after a ride, wipe the chain off, reapply for the next day, let it sit for, you know, whatever, 24 hours between the two rides. And I basically do that every single ride. And, and, and even, even with the wax, I could probably get like two rides out of it, two and a half rides out of it, but I hate squeaky chains and I don't want to get to that point. Wow. So Ka- Kaylee, yeah. I have to say like, this is, this is a bit of a turning point. Like I'm so, mm. I, I'm so, <laughs> I, I'm so proud to wis- witness this moment in your, in your bicycle maintenance progression here. 
It's a big it's deal. It's just entirely conditions based. It's entirely conditions based. Like I'm back in Vermont now, and I'm you know it's it's raining outside literally right now, and I'm like, right. So, I so you're don't. dumping motor oil on it now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go right back to where I where I started. But no, it just it just the reality is it's the only thing that works. Like I've tried all the dry lubes, you know, the quote unquote dry lubes. Tried every single one. Uh, none none of them work where I live. So because mm, they're all wet squirt. lubes. Exactly. <laughs> squirt. Yeah. Squirt it is. And I, so I've been doing squirt on the mountain bike. Cause again, I do, I, I use it all the time and I've been using some of the ceramic speed, uh, lube drip lube on my like road and gravel bikes because they get, well, frankly, they get ridden a little bit less and they don't get ridden in the moon dust. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they can kind of take almost anything. Uh, it's just that, it's just that mountain bike. It's just, mm. yeah, oh, I'll send, okay. I'll, 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 t- I'll get a vial of this dirt. And I'll and I'll package it up and I'll send it to Adam Kieran and I can say what what is this stuff and <laughs> can you can you develop something that lasts longer than that mm. lasts longer than like forty miles? Oh, this <laughs> sounds be like, amazing. This sounds like a challenge to Adam. I'm eager to hear yeah, how this goes. Go. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. Well, let's uh, <laughs> let's 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 kind of cut off our discussion of new stuff here for a moment because Dave, I want to hear about your trip to Melbourne for the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. What a so your your first gallery just went up on escapecollective.com. And so anyone listening to the show, they should head over and check out that gallery if you not if you have not yet already. Um what were some of the notable things that you saw there, Dave? Yeah, so I should preface this by saying uh I am hoping to have a special episode from the show. Uh ooh, with an interview multiple interviews with uh I haven't actually checked if the auto worked out, so that's why I said I'm hoping to have. But uh, yeah, there were interviews with like Mark Hester of Prova, Darren Baum of Baum Cycles, uh, Mick Williams of WRP and Trinity Mountain Bike, who is a name you should know because... Sorry, it's a name you probably don't know, but it's a name you should know because he's just on another planet as far as what he's innovating. Uh, yeah, so I'm hoping to have that come out in the next few days but uh yeah in the meantime uh yeah it's it's always a great show it's set uh across the i guess across the bay from melbourne city on a on a beach a little beach suburb called williamstown and it's in an old shipbuilding shed which is uh sets a pretty cool atmosphere for uh yeah a bunch of passionate makers uh so yeah, the the show has sort of grown it's no longer just australian makers there are now um representation from international brands so like there was some moots there there were um there was some uh brands from uh, italy which i'm i'm struggling to remember how to pronounce uh officin matteo i think it is officin matteo i would probably just butchered the hell out of that <laughs> anyway uh they were quite nice uh yeah it's like uh it, proper italian made carbon aluminium and stainless steel bikes uh but yeah it's just uh it's a cool vibe there and uh the Aussies absolutely punch way above their weight when it comes to uh I guess innovating material usage and pushing the boundaries of what custom bikes do. I almost feel like with the size of the Australian handmade industry the way that it is um I wonder if whether this is a conscious thought or not if they feel like they almost have to innovate more in order to stand out. Yes. Because there, I mean, there definitely is an astounding amount of innovation coming from Australia. Yeah. 
It, it is. It is like the our population for such a, a niche product isn't necessarily large enough to maintain itself. So they really have to when they're pushing that high end, they really have to be different and be better in order to reach an international market and to make sort of statement pieces in a sense. So yeah, I mean they they really are at the cutting edge of that. Uh, some of that also, I guess, in some sense, comes through like government grants and things like that. You know, so like Partington Wheels was uh, initially founded through a university sort of design. Uh, Bastion initially were were working with the the government science division using their three D printers when they first started. So yeah, there's there's there is some level of. Uh, I guess background industry support driving this, but I guess once these brands have figured out and proven the concept, then they've gone off and on their own and commercialized the product, and and uh, in some cases are yeah, I, I think a, a year or two ahead of what uh, what other countries are doing in this space. Man, well, that's always good to see that that industry is alive and thriving. Uh, as I mentioned, the day's first gallery is up on escapecollective.com. Uh, I would imagine a second gallery is coming soon. Mm. Um, and it a might third, be up by the time. And a yeah, fourth, and, well, even, probably. But yeah. I, I have no doubt there will be multiple ones, and every one of them will be justified, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, by, by the time you are listening to this, there will be at least one on the site. So definitely be sure to check that out. Uh, and while you're checking out those images, please note the fact that. They're all full size and big and high resolution and mm. beautiful. Yeah, turn that phone sideways, or better yet, look and look at them on an actual size screen on a, on a big, big screen. Yeah, big screen. Uh, I, I would, I would just like to give a shout out to a few standouts, uh, which I think James, you might find interesting. So, uh, top of mind, and this is actually going to get its own feature: is Prova made a kid's bike. Uh, so his sister works with him. It's a family business, uh, Kelly, and and her five year old now has a Prova. Oh dear God! <laughs> my favorite thing with this bike is that the price—if you were to buy one—the price is no different to an adult's bike because all the processes <laughs> that they normally put into a Prova were applied to this kid's bike. So it's like you know, uh, in-house butted tubing and and shaped and like three D printed dropouts. I think it's even got a UDH compatible dropout. But the joke was is that like they hadn't tested it, but I'm pretty sure the existing Eagle transmission derailleur would probably just rub on the ground with a 20 inch wheel. So, but yeah, it was just incredible. It's got like a one piece handlebar and stem. It's 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 anodized. Uh, yeah, Kelly, Kelly's daughter actually even helped with like the masking of the anodization herself, which is really cool. Oh, fantastic. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's that's getting its own feature just because it's it's amazingly cool uh, and totally over the top. Um, the other one, there's uh, HTech in Perth. Um, Hayden, he's he's a, a master of wooden bikes, but in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. And he's been trying to get a he was trying to make a road frame at one kilogram with uh, with wood. And what he's basically uh, landed on is using uh, veneer woods, so wrapped around sort of a mandrel uh, with a, a layer of carbon fiber in it to to give it proper structure and then the wood's really there for like the the ride quality side of things and then he's using his own carbon fiber lugs that he's he's wrapped around sort of 3d printed uh internal molds that can then be like dissolved out this guy's early 20s by the way and he's doing it all by himself uh he didn't hit the one kilo mark it's 1.2 kilos but yeah I mean, oh that, my god but that frame he hadn't ridden it yet but uh but yeah i mean that frame will probably go through 
a bunch of testing to make sure it's safe and all that. But he's just yeah doing things in in that side of the that side of the material that uh, are actually making wood bikes quite attractive to me. Uh, and then the other one is um, Chris Palmer, which is an, a Victorian maker. He's brand new. He's been making bikes for like less than 12 months from memory. Uh, and he's kind of come out with uh, some pretty cool looking bikes that almost look like they're 10 years old. They're, they're sort of wrapped carbon, tube-to-tube -tube construction, very lightweight, very skinny tube carbon bikes. He only had rim brake bikes on show. He hasn't made a disc brake bike yet. Uh, but what's most right intriguing... Yes. What's most intriguing with him is uh, he's a mechanical engineer specializing in chassis design within the automotive world. And he listed having worked with, like, top of my head, I think it was, like, Holden, Toyota board and most recently was working in the u.s on contract for tesla so some yeah i i would say he's probably got a skill set that will uh lead to some pretty cool bikes to worth uh to look for mm, interesting cool rim brakes only <laughs> yeah i think he's got disc brakes on his mind now but yeah it was cool to see someone just rock up to the show with nothing but rim brake bikes so wow wow well, cool. I got yeah. asked recently if I was if I was hoarding uh, SRAM Red rim brake stuff because for my mosaic mm. because it's now it's gonna go. And I said yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think it, I think for all of us rim brake people out there, I think it is officially hoarding time. I think yeah, okay. now is the moment to do your thing. Mm -hmm. Put some boxes in the basement. Yeah, <laughs> I've got case. I've got mine. <laughs> yep. Well, cool. Dave, I'm looking forward to seeing all that stuff. Like Again, check out all that stuff on the site. Uh, while you're in there, also look up Matt Wickstrom's article on how to buy your first custom bike. That's another really good resource there if, it's, if that's something you're even considering. Um, but yeah, go ahead and get yourself a membership so you can check out all that stuff unlimited. Um, all right, we, we are running kind of long on this show here, and there's still some other segments I want to hit before we wrap up here. Um, Kaylee, Dave, do you guys have anything on your mind this week that you want to talk about? I feel like I just shared mine. That's okay. Fair, yeah, fair. Yeah, I would just I just want to shout out modern mountain bikes. Just shout out to modern mountain bikes um, because they're amazing. Because they're amazing. So I I I went and rode the the trails that I literally spent every Wednesday night of my entire youth <laughs> racing a cross country bike around from about. Uh, I mean, yeah, sort of like late nineties to about 2006 or so. And, uh, so you can kind of picture the, the era of bike, right? Like I think the last bike I had there was a, was an old fuel, fuel, Trek fuel, um, 26 inch wheels, just getting into tubeless at that point, like mostly kind of faked it tubeless, you know, lots of, lots of electrical tape and, uh, Yeah. Anyway, uh, rode some of the same trails yesterday on my Epic Evo, which I love that bike, but there's lots of other very good bikes like it. And it was absolutely shocking how much easier. And granted, I think I was probably a better mountain biker in 2006, or at the very least, I cared less about crashing, right? Like I was 17 years old. I was racing like all the time. I didn't care about crashing because I was 17 years old. And I I swear, granted, Strava didn't exist back then, which is unfortunate, but I, I can guarantee you that I was going significantly faster yesterday as a 34-year-old putzing around in the woods with nowhere near <laughs> as much fitness and way more fear. <laughs> and I, yeah, just shout out to, to Modern Bikes because uh, I think anybody who's been riding 
particularly mountain bikes, as long as we have. Again, it's a bit of the it's like the reverse of the boiled frog. Like it's hard to really really recognize how much better we have it than we did 15 20 years ago until you either go ride one of those old bikes or you go ride a trail that you haven't really ridden in about 15 years and you're like holy sh-. like i remember this feature and i remember it being just like terrifying every every lap and i just rode over it and it's like it didn't even matter kaylee i would love for you to somehow but figure out a way while you are in that area to do a back-to-back comparison, one one on your Epic Evo, but the other rides should be on an old catamount. So you should do the, <laughs> your old catamount trails on an old catamount and compare <laughs> the performance of that old URT mountain bike design to your current Epic Evo. I don't have a catamount at hand. I could race back-to-back on my Epic Evo and my dad's like 1997 Cannondale Killer V. Ooh, with the head shock. Ooh. Um, Does it still work? It still works. Oh. Uh, it, so I, I wrote it last time I was here, and I'm just shocked that anybody was allowed to make a bicycle that bad. Uh, it like, so my, my dad used to endo on this bike all the time. And my brother and I would, <laughs> my brother and I would laugh I at why. him. And we'd be like, yeah, we'd be like, ha ha, dad can't ride mountain bikes. Ha ha. You just like hit a stump and flew over the handlebars. And then I ride it and I'm like, oh. Right, because you're, you're basically it, riding the equivalent of a penny farthing. It is actively trying to buck you over the front. I'm, I'm just surprised times. that Killer V is still in one piece. <laughs> it's no, still the, going. The Killer Vs were fairly reliable. Oh, it, was like the ra- it was the Ravens uh, that I'm were really... The yeah, no, this is a hardtail. Exactly right. yeah. yeah, this is a hardtail with, with whatever, 60 mil of mm-hmm. head shock travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, rim brakes and 26-inch wheels. <laughs> and I made it into a one-by at some point because I think the front shifter broke and we just didn't put it back to put a new one back on so now it's a one by but it is, it, yeah terrifying terrifying mm. bike mm. Well, anyway that that's my that's my what's up what's been on my mind since i rode yesterday because i was just riding these trails yesterday and i was like i'm just zipping through the woods going so much faster than i thought i should have been able to go with like current fitness levels and it was just the bike and it's really it's truly astounding how far we've come mm. okay uh i Kaylee, I have, well, being significantly older than you, I would say that I very, very much agree with you on that because, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised at all that your dad used to end a lot on that bike because, uh, mainly because the front wheel used to be essentially directly below him. Um, turn, turns <laughs> out, so bad. Turn, turns out good geometry is good. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, well, all right, well. I've got something on my mind this week that is related to Unbound from this past weekend. So uh, to to be clear, I did not ride Unbound. I was not there. Uh, I have never ridden Unbound. Um, but anyone who has been keeping track of what happened there this past weekend certainly is aware of the absolute mud fest that occurred early on in the race. Um, and I mean, that that's sort of a separate topic, the mud in and of itself. Um, you can check out Matt Deneef's gallery that he put together on the site to see what that really looked like. It was quite apocalyptic, I would say. Um, but from a tech standpoint, one thing I wanted to talk about was sort of, you know, kind of the, like the true cost of entry of an event like Unbound that is just so, so just destructive to gear. Um, I mean, we saw, uh, I, I have no idea how many derailers got ripped off of that thing. Uh, ripped off at that event how many frames were worn through from all the abrasive mud that they were trying to ride through and like caked up on the seat stays and stuff like that um like Ana Mariah Rook uh so uh, a former co-worker of all, all of ours 
She uh, came in second at the Women's Unbound XL, by the way, which is amazing. Um, and then uh, actually, while we're on that topic, a friend of ours, Kristen Legan, won that event. So pretty amazing. Congratulations, Kristen. Um, but anyway, Ana Maria had the state of mind to take her bike completely apart after the event, after she got home. And uh, for sure, a whole bunch of her components were completely destroyed, like not usable anymore. But she also wore through several layers of carbon on her seat stay, um, on her uh, on her specialized crux that she bought and paid for herself. Um, so she now has to have that repaired at Ruckus and has to have that repainted and stuff like that. Um, but like basically anything metal is just destroyed. Like her headset bearings are toast. Anything that is steel is rusted. Um, drivetrain components, and you imagine running it through that kind of abrasive slurry for that amount of time. If you compound that over however many thousands of people were going through similar situations, um, I, I can't even imagine how much that event cost people. James, are you are you trying to create some sort of um, yeah, some sort of theory around this that maybe it was the bike industry that had caused them to direct the race through that mud paddock? Is that what you're saying? I don't think they As were supposed to redirect the route. It was actually Shimano I, and Shram working together, and like, no, no, let's send <laughs> yeah, it this way. Yeah, yeah, weird. Like, you know, they. I guess that would explain why there were signs at the beginning of those sections saying, like, you know, mud mud section sponsored by Shram and Shimano, and then there were <laughs> Shram and Shimano employees with hoses, like watering down the watering down the road. Um, no, but 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 seriously. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be no. That, it would be no more ridiculous than some of the other graphics <laughs> that have popped up in, yeah, the, in totally, the last totally. like six months. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of debate as to whether the organizers should have diverted around that particular section. And um, Anna I actually wrote a really nice article on this on Cycling Weekly. That's that's worth checking out. But uh, she talked to the race organizers, and they doubled down, saying that you know that's kind of part of the ethos of Unbound. Like that it's it's supposed to be uh, kind of like over the top in terms of difficulty and like unknown environmental conditions and stuff like that. But um, the only reason why I bring that up is I just wonder how many people signed up for unbound trained for months and months and months, you know, strapped their budgets, strapped their, you know, the, the, the patients of themselves and their family devoted however many countless hours to, to training for this thing. And then you come home and you realize that your bike is destroyed I wonder, um, I'd love to hear from people on this. It, does, does that sort of thought play into your calculation as to whether or not an event like that is worthwhile? I, I don't have an answer for that. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't go to Unbound. Um, and I'm not saying that the course should or should not be redirected. But I'm just wondering if people think about that. Like, is that, is that something that they consider? Because I'm not made of money. I know the two of you are not made of money. And if I were to do an event where my entire bicycle is literally destroyed with a whole bunch of unusable parts, I'd be kind of bummed. Yeah, I think I think this like it's it's an equation in stage racing, right? I think anyone that goes into a race like Cape Epic kind of understands that they're they're going in with a fresh bike, and that bike is going to be trashed at the end of it, uh, and that they need to pay for servicing during the event even like most of them hire mechanics to get them through the event uh so yeah i don't know i think it's in my mind i think if you if you're entering something like unbound and you're putting yourself and your bike through 200 miles i think you're kind of accepting the fact that your bike's not going to be the same as it is when you when you're lined up 
but but yeah it would be interesting to hear the perspective of others and whether others are actually actively staying away from these events because of the the component cost who knows i think what got people was that it was this one sec section yes early on right? like and it was avoidable yeah and it was totally avoidable yeah. and, they, and and they've rerouted unbound many 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 yeah. times in the past in fact i would say more often than not they end up making a pretty and, late change to to the unbound route and and to not do it this time feels a bit of an oversight like i, I read on mariah's story in, in cycling weekly and and i think Timo Seymour, the, the CEO over there, oh, that's head of head of events. I can't remember what his title is. Anyway, uh, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't really. We're getting into, we're getting away from tech chat here, but like, I didn't really buy. I don't really buy the like. Well, this is this is no. pure gravel racing, yeah. right? Like, yeah, maybe 50, maybe ten years ago, you know, in Trans Iowa, when it was eight people on the start line, and if you hit a patch of mud like that, you saw it coming. Cause there's nobody in front of you and you just went in the grass and you went around it. And there weren't a couple hundred people all doing this at the, like in the same moment, it's a very different scenario. So yeah, I don't know. It, it just sucks. Is what it is. What is what it is. Like a lot of the pros are one thing, but yeah, there's a heck of a lot of amateurs that just, you know, just took a $2,000 weekend and turned it into an $8,000 weekend. And that's, that, that's, that's not nothing. That's that's pretty significant. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. It's it's part of the sport, and it. I guess you could argue it makes it more adventurous and all that. But yeah, if you're if you're talking about terrain that took out, according to Nathan Haas, fifty percent of the elite field. I don't know how much of an exaggeration that is. I haven't haven't double checked that, but it's uh, there's something wrong there. Yeah like in it you know bad conditions are part of mountain biking too right but if you live in if you live in a place where the soil doesn't handle water particularly well you cancel mountain bike races when when it's wet right like like i I mean i live in one of those places there's lots of clay in the ground if it gets wet you you literally can't ride through it you get eight feet in and then you are walking home with a 50 pound bike (laughs) like that that sounds like the section that they were that they went through is basically the same stuff. Right. Except and for miles and miles. Except for miles and miles. Yeah. And, and I don't know, like if, if I feel like these days unbound would have the obligation to, if, if not, uh, reroute it, like make note of it to absolutely everybody and say, you're going to want to just get off and walk around this for or, four miles. Or at least I would I think love that's to valid. S- yeah. Or at least I would love to see them, Maybe perhaps partner with some component manufacturers ahead of time and be like, hey, this is part of the course. This is part of our thing. We know it's going to be really hard and impossible and super hard on your bike. But we have partnered with Shimano and SRAM and whoever to give you know, verified unbound participants some like one-time discount on a bunch of replacement parts or something like that would be i feel like that would be at <laughs> least a, everyone gets 50 percent off a salsa storm chase a single speed <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, I, but i feel like that would be the sort of gesture that would be kind of meaningful like it's not just sort of like this is how it is go screw yourself sort of sort of attitude you know yeah but anyway yeah. again point point being i just sorry i just i just pulled up um dylan stuckey who is oh. sarah sturm's partner and also mechanic. Uh, he's just posted a thing on Instagram 
says, oh boy, here we go. And it's a, it's an S works diverge. Sarah's S works diverge in every part that he has could have taken off of it. He's taken <laughs> off of it, uh, which with, with hash bound, unbound, unfucking. Oh, God. <laughs> the uh, Dylan, Dylan, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but good luck to you, buddy. That's going to be, that's going to be a lot of work. Um, anyway, so like I said, I am not trying to like, you know, drum up a drum up a whole bunch of controversy or debate or like, you know, point fingers at anybody or anything, but it's just sort of just food for thought to just consider not just the cost of entry and lodging and transportation and that sort of thing, but just think about the potential cost and the cost of replacement of your equipment for some of this stuff for certain events. So that that's just what's on my mind. All right. Um, before we wrap up, anyone got a little PSA that they want to share today? Because I do. I'm keen to hear you. Don't yours, ride a 1997 Cannondale Killer V if you can help it. <laughs> All right. Duly noted. Duly noted. Yep. Um, I feel like my PSA is a little bit more practical. And this one was actually brought up by a um, by a Escape Collective member uh, on the uh, on our Discord channel um, and brought up an old tip that I've actually been giving to people for God knows how long at this point. And that's to not take your spare inner tubes and just chuck them bare into your saddle pack or whatever you use to store your repair stuff. Um, because generally speaking, especially now with how modern tires have gotten pretty good as far as puncture protection and cuts and tears and that sort of thing, um, most of us are not replacing inner tubes regularly. Uh, again, also particularly with the rise of tubeless. Um, so chances are that tube is in your pack for a pretty long time. And uh, my PSA is if you are, well, if you have had had a tube in there for quite a while, first, I would advise pulling it out and inflating it and checking it to see if there haven't, haven't been any holes worn into it. Because if you haven't bothered to put that thing into a plastic baggie or something before you stuffed it into a bag, then chances are kind of decent, especially over time, that, uh, yeah, you've got a little little hole worn into the thing, which would suck, uh, considering right when you need that tube most is going to be when you have a hole in it. This is particularly true if you if your spare is something like a tubolito or something like that. Uh, I had this happen to a friend recently, pulled, pulled his tubolito out. Like, yeah, I mean, how often do you guys flat a mountain bike? Yeah, like once a year, maybe, these, these days? And so... Yeah, pulled his tubolito out, stuck it in. This is after trying like eight different plugs, finally gave up. Uh, starts inflating it, and it's just worn a hole straight through the side. Uh, so top tip, if you are the parent of a toddler, uh, toddler toddler socks are the perfect size to hold your your tubolitos, and even a small tube. Or if you don't, you aren't, you're not a parent, you could just like... Go to the store and buy a pair of baby socks. Oh, hey, how about that? <laughs> they're, they're like the perfect size for for just wrapping up a, a, a tubolito or a small tube and sticking in a saddle pack or, in my case, the little like uh, box thing that sits at the bottom of a of an Epic Evo. Right. Or what you do on the road bike is you take your tube and stick it into a sock and then you take your sock – you take your tube in a sock and stick it into another sock that's underneath your saddle. Yeah, I like to double sock it. Yeah. <laughs> very important. Very important. <laughs> Anyway, well, that is my PSA for this week's episode of Geek Warning. And I think we're just going to go ahead and wrap up there. So uh, as always, thanks so much for listening to the show. And just another reminder, please, if you haven't already become a member of the Escape Collective, please consider doing so. It really is super helpful. Um, 
again, like monthly membership down to just eleven ninety nine, uh, and discount if you do an annual membership, which we highly recommend. Um, and then other thing that's really helpful for this podcast in particular is if you have not already left us a rating and review on iTunes, please go ahead and do so because it does help people find this show and help us reach a wider audience. Yes, uh, I met a few people on the weekend that told me how much they used to love. Uh, uh, I'm just the other say show. the other show. Uh, yeah, and uh, we're sad that it had left and didn't know that we're around. So I think we're still not quite reaching the the whole audience that we were before. And uh, yeah, if if you know someone that used to listen, check that they're they're tuning in now. Can I, can I make a small announcement? Please, oh, please do. This is unrelated to this podcast, but we do have a special sort of short-lived special podcast coming out this week. Uh, the Unchained Binge Pod. Uh, some of you may know that Netflix is coming out with its, its Tour de France series this week. The, the sort of docu-series, kind of like Drive to Survive. And it's called Unchained. And well, frankly, we're, we're going we're gonna to watch it. And then we're going to talk about it and we're going to do that for all eight episodes. And that's going to show up uh, starting at the end of this week and then into next week. And I'm actually kind of excited about it. I, I was saying this to my family today. I was like, I've I've made kind of like roughly the same podcast for like six years now. Right. Like, I, you know, we do a weekly show. So there's always something new to talk about. There's always interesting things to talk about. But it's like the same, for, roughly the same format. I've been doing this for a long time. And this is a totally new thing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to making it and, uh, yeah, I, it'll be fun to watch the show. It'll be fun to talk about the show. And I think it'll be a fun podcast to listen to. Uh, so that's the unchained binge pod. I, I strongly worry that you're not going to watch each episode, um, enough multiple times and report on it from the various different aspects you see. And of course I'm referring to the New Zealand podcast, the worst idea of all time where they <laughs> find a that. terrible movie and they just watch it. They watch the same terrible movie every week and then discuss what the new findings they found as they slowly lose their mind throughout the season. <laughs> this is where I want you to go with the binge-watching podcast. I just want to point out that Kaylee is the editor-in-chief of Escape Collective, and he has just given himself a job where he is getting paid to watch TV. So <laughs> I just want to point that out. <laughs> like eight hours worth. Like eight hours worth. <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Uh, I can't wait. Anyway, check check that out. It'll be it'll be good. I think we're gonna make the first episode with myself and Johnny Long and Abby Mickey and Kit Nicholson this week, and we'll have some other folks in. Like I think Ian's gonna join for maybe one or two. Um, yeah, it'll be good fun. You can either get it on the Unchained Binge podcast channel, or if you just subscribe to the sort of main channel, the Big Escape Collective Uber channel. We'll drop it in there as well. It'll just it'll take a little bit longer to to show up there. We're gonna spread them out a little bit more on the on the on the main channel. So, yeah, just a little plug for that. Uh, hmm. Looking forward to it. Well, fun. That sounds like it could be really cool, Keely. I might even listen to that one. So, hmm. I think you should. How about that? <laughs> All right. Well, with that, again, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week for another episode of Geek Warning. See you. Yes. Yeah.